You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. My co-host, Paul Doroshenko. I'm just the guest now. No, you're the co-host. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm just the every week guest. You haven't had anybody else on in a while. Well, I have been very busy. You've been incredibly busy. I have busy. been in Indianapolis. I have been in Saskatoon. I have been in Campbell River. I am going to be in Whitehorse, all in the span of 10 days. You succeeded in a case in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and British Columbia in three cases all in the last two weeks yeah so there you go you're um, you're busy you're the busiest lawyer i've ever known i feel like it <laughs> i'm not gonna argue I, oh. I don't i don't even know what time zone i'm in anymore like i look at my clock and i'm like okay and how do i convert this to what the time is at home because i don't know where i am well there you go it happens that way yeah Anyway, so you're famous, and you're all over the place, and I'm uh, happy for you, but uh, we still record a podcast every week. We still record and a podcast I get every to week. And uh, I get to be the, uh, the co-host. The co-host. The every, every week guest. Yes. And this week, I actually wanted to start a little bit by talking about some a project that we've got going on in BC right now. It's the Law Society of BC's Innovation Sandbox. Ah, Yes. And you and I had talked previously, I think about um, two years ago, when there was some litigation going on about um, Jeremy Maddock, who was trying to represent people in traffic court without representing people in traffic court because he's not a lawyer, and some of the rulings that were made uh, by the BC courts about whether or not he had the right to do that. Such a strange case, because the guy went through law school. Yeah. And he did everything did that he needed articles. to do. He could just finish them. And he was, a, you know, apparently reasonably intelligent guy who had a fairly good understanding, obviously, of traffic court. Yep. Because he was involved with it. And then he was sort of defiant. Um, it seemed that he just didn't want to be governed by the law society yep. uh, or what have you. And um, one can have some certain level of sympathy there, but at yes. the same time... His position was that it was prohibitively expensive to hire a lawyer to deal with traffic tickets, which I thought was funny because when I looked at his rates, because I had some people who came to me after he'd been handling their case, and yes. it's about the same. Yeah, yeah, we're charging about the same rate. So it wasn't more expensive. I mean, no. we just had to figure out a way to be able to do it inexpensively. But the um, he uh, continued to... to push the envelope and you know it's very interesting because the law society there's a you know this ontario traffic ticket paralegal thing tried to set up here uh like 40 years ago and then the guy who did that uh ended up with an injunction against him in bc to keep him from practicing law yes then about oh i don't know nine years ago he came back trying to do the same thing because every time we have an access to to justice discussion nobody ever talks about the fact that people can't afford uh lawyers in their family law case because yeah. the litigation crushes them you can't just, get a lawyer for you your can't traffic get a lawyer ticket. for traffic ticket and of course i went on the news and went on the uh <laughs> to explain actually there are lawyers who do traffic tickets plenty of us and and yeah. and we're happy to take the case there's no shortage of traffic ticket lawyers in bc um 
But yes, yeah, so he tried to do the same thing, and he was shut down. But then we have this innovation sandbox. Mm-hmm. So they have, have granted him a limited permission to do some things in relation to traffic court. And, you know, they'll see how it goes, I guess. But I still maintain concerns about that process. I think that opening the doors, you know, and I, I expect that, like, if it pans out well, you know, there's another company that's doing a traffic ticket thing as well. If it pans out well, we're going to end up seeing a lot of non-lawyers wanting to get into the traffic ticket biz. And that's like, fine, except for there's a lot of risk to the public there because you're not dealing with people who are used to dealing with lawyers. And the less regulation you have of people who are not lawyers engaged in lawyer-like activities, the less protection of the public there is, which actually reminds me of some of the things that they said in the Clayton report about how the law society's primary concern should be protection of the public and the public interest and not like, you know, all these fun little side projects. Well, yeah, this uh, innovation sandbox to me um, strikes me as one of these circumstances where the law society faces criticism Part of the reason they face criticism is they're out there doing things that they, in my view, should not be doing. Um, and uh, I've discussed that before with you. But the, um, yeah. the And so so does the Clayton Report find. Well, I know. And, uh, you know, really their whole, the purpose of them should be just regulating the legal profession. Yep. Um, and um, protecting the public. And protect, that is how you protect the public. Um, and they shouldn't be in the business of educating people in my I, view they I, shouldn't be you know there's I, they shouldn't be out advocating for lawyers in my view i think though we should acknowledge that there are things that are going on within the innovation sandbox that are within the four corners of what the law society can do there's the access pro bono everybody legal clinic that's taking creating like i don't know 30 40 articling positions and using articled students who are supervised by lawyers and trained by lawyers and permitted to practice law pursuant to law society rules and regulated by the law society, creating positions for them to provide legal services in underserved remote and rural communities. And you and I, of course, are supporting that with donations. Yes, we are, apparently. Yeah, you you committed. Did I? Well, that's great. Um, I think you were drinking when I asked you. (laughs) Well, you asked me to donate, and I usually just say yes. Um, No, I, I mean... There is an access to justice issue, and the access to justice issue is that extremely wealthy people and companies can afford lawyers, and almost nobody else can afford a lawyer. Um, And uh, drunk driving lawyers, people can afford because it's surprisingly inexpensive, but if you were to charge the rates that lawyers do in big law for the hours or days that you spend working on those cases, no, those people couldn't afford it. And people get in their family law cases, and they run out of money in a matter of weeks or months. And then they have nobody to represent them. And the sandbox is not going to represent them in those circumstances. That's the real shortage. My, you know, the, the, the sandbox, I don't like the phrase of it. Um, I don't like the term of it. It's very um, exclusionary. It just also feels very... You can't play in my sandbox. It, yeah, and it feels... I'm a lawyer. This kinda, is my sandbox. Kind of dirty. And it's also, it's like, we're just going to tease you kids. Um, you know, anytime you make a suggestion, we're going to say no but we'll let you play in the sandbox. Yeah. And I find it really um, paternalistic, and I don't like it at all. 
Uh, and we are a profession that just says no every time. There's really been oh, no innovation change. in law. Change. We don't like change. Um, yeah, exactly. And I don't, uh, I don't see this as being in any way meaningful. But anyway, let's move on to, let's move on to the what we issue to talk of about. Yes, this was paralegals. All a background er to why this case out of Ontario is very important here in BC. Because this is exactly the type of risk that I worry about. Tell us about the case, Paul. Well, I worry about similar risks, but this is a surprising risk. So um, there were some paralegals in Ontario, and uh, they were advertising traffic ticket defense. And this one paralegal uh, was advertising 95% success rate traffic ticket defense and so forth. And they were regulated by the Law Society of Ontario because they permit this they certain level of paralegals. regulated paralegals. Um, and then it came out and um, it <laughs> came out in a, in a way that the Law Society determined um, ultimately that there was a bribe scheme. So the, uh, some of these paralegals had an agreement with someone who worked in the court registry. They would uh, tell their clients, don't go to court, don't go to court. And um, the clients wouldn't know what had taken place. But a deemed conviction, uh, basically they would be convicted in absentia. Uh, of the offense, and then the person who was working in the registry yeah. would go in there and change the court record. Allegedly. Allegedly to, well, the Law Society concluded that this happened, but there's more to the story, obviously. Um, the allegation was that this person would go and change the court record uh, to show it as a acquittal. Um, so... You know, this is what they, the claim was these paralegals were doing. And I guess you could claim a 95% success rate. Yeah. And that there was some sort of payments being made to this fellow who worked in the court registry. Now, criminal charges flowed, but the Law Society already took their steps and, and suspended one of these people twice. Well, this um, guy also called his firm, We Win or It's Free. Yeah, uh, that's obviously not something you could do in BC. Uh, I don't know that you could do that in Ontario, uh, but it it sounded like he registered that name somehow and <laughs> notified the law site. I can tell you when I tried to register VCL uh, Vancouver Criminal Law, uh, the Law Society of BC shut me down. But now there's another law office called Attack Law, so the law office the Law Society allowed that. They yeah, Administrative it. Tribunal Advocates Canada, even though you're not supposed to have a practice area in your name. Yes, um, and we had uh, <laughs> we had uh, criminal law, and that's why they shut us down, I guess, v VLC, or BCL, Vancouver Criminal Law. Um, but in any event, back to these paralegals. So this was the allegation, and the Law Society stepped in and shut them down. And apparently this fellow, one of them who had that website, um, continued to operate in some form or another, uh, which we've seen before. People yep. who were shut down or suspended, who uh, or asked found not some, to, or like asked Maddox. not to, yeah, who just continued to do it. Um, so I guess there's a you know if you if you leave the door open a little bit, people maybe will try and push the door open further. Give an inch, take a mile. Yes. So. So ultimately, um, criminal charges were laid against uh, all of the paralegals and I think the uh, the person who worked in the registry. And the most recent story that I could find, it looked like everything was dropped uh, at some point or another and they concluded that they couldn't prove it for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, a criminal charge in a in a one venue is going to be different than the Law Society in another venue 
Sometimes the standard of proof is going to be different. The evidence that you're going to call is likely going to be different. Just because you've got a finding at the law society doesn't mean that you could have a finding in the criminal court. And just because you had a finding in the criminal court doesn't mean you're going to have the same finding at the law society hearing nope. uh, down the road, even though the criminal court's got to be proven beyond and a reasonable doubt. Because you're going, to be calling, you're going to be calling different evidence, right? Judge Rideout in the Samji case found that the regulatory proceedings are not you know, uh, determinative of what happens with the criminal proceedings and vice versa. Exactly. And so, they're not collateral attacks. And it's not a collateral attack, yeah. So that was uh, that's an interesting one, and uh, it kind of tells you why we are opposed to the idea of paralegals in this yep. realm. <laughs> um, number one, we provide that service at the same price that they were providing. Yep. Uh, we are bound by by privilege and we are in the position where we can talk to the police in a circumstance that it's uh yep. uh that it's it's uh, it's and, off the record we'll and, actually go to the courthouse and appear and, and run the trial and do the trial if necessary we get we'll someone to alter officers. or doctor court records exactly <laughs> we're going to do it lawfully and within the bounds of the ethics of of yeah. the legal profession as you do so um and you know that we're a law office, and any other traffic ticket law office in BC is doing the same thing that we're doing. There, we're we're defending people, you know, properly, appropriately, and and for fees that are are reasonable. reasonable. So, yep. uh, but anyway, did you want to discuss more about that case? Nope, I'm ready to move on. Okay, let's do so. Well, uh, I think we should also talk about. You know, somebody said to me recently, "You guys always talk about your wins. You never talk about your losses." I'd like to talk about a judicial review that we didn't win, but that we got some golden nuggets in. So people think I don't talk about my losses. A lot of the cases that I refer to that I've done are cases maybe that I didn't win, but that I got a point of law that I consider to be a win. The other thing is, if when it comes to like impaired driving cases, um, you know, you may be looking at it and and. Uh, the win might be the person is still punished, but they don't end up with a criminal record. Yep. Uh, there might be there might be some sort of resolution that comes to some sort of balance, and everybody's like, "You're putting drunk drivers back on the road." And oh, there's Lordy. plenty of times. Do my job for a week. Yeah, there's plenty. <laughs> well, my gosh, there's plenty of times. <laughs> yeah, do, that, do my that, job for a week and see if you're still walking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Plenty of time that you're negotiating something out that makes sense, more sense than what you would get if you had the mandatory minimum punishment for drunk driving cases. Yeah. So, um, yeah, not everything's a win. And I don't think we're out there, you know, if we, if we mention, if you mention a success in something, you probably succeeded in 20 others before you mention it, which is kind of funny because yeah, it means really that this, you don't mention them wins. much. No, yeah. you bring them up. Like at the beginning, you're like, you won cases in these three provinces. And I was like, oh yeah, I did. Like, I don't even think about it. Yeah, I know. I'm just doing it. Well, you probably, you know, succeeded in seven others in BC in the same time, but. I don't know. I'm not keeping track. No, I know. I don't have time. So this case, uh, it was argued in court. Um, it's uh, I worked on the argument with Nancy in our office, Nancy Brar, who's been on the podcast before. Wonderful lawyer, very very smart. Got some amazing findings from the court. Okay, tell me. So, as you and I both know, in IRP cases, one of the big issues that we're finding because we've even had studies commissioned on it is acid reflux. Oh, okay. People out there always experiencing acid reflux. 
largely because alcohol is a trigger for acid reflux, but also, you know, there's all sorts of other triggers. For Significant acid. portion. I get of the acid population. reflux if I eat anything. Significant portion of the population suffers gastroesophageal reflux disorder, acid yep. reflux, something coming back up. People are you can hear them coughing. It can be because of that. You can have a chronic cough because of that. You can experience pain because of that. And of course, the issue is that if you've got any alcohol in your stomach and it regurgitates up into your mouth and you provide a sample into a roadside breathalyzer, yep. it's going to elevate the sample. So in the IRP, immediate roadside prohibition scheme, where you're just being tested at the roadside, um, and if you've got GERD, you're going to have a significant potential of an unreliable breath sample, elevated breath sample, not reflecting what your blood alcohol concentration is. Yes. So this was one of those cases. And our client in the case um, had indicated that he was um, uh, eating some glutinous foods. He had some beers. Yeah. That has gluten. Then he had a burrito. That's got gluten. And he gets like an acid reflux reaction when he has anything that's glutinous. Oh, okay, so some people who eat gluten, yeah. glutinous food get a. And get as acid you know, reaction. because you've read the decisions from the adjudicators, the adjudicators go, well, if these things caused you to experience acid reflux, it's just completely inconsistent with common sense and ordinary human experience, which is like their favorite line, um, for you to eat those things. Because they make you not feel good. You know what else makes you not feel good? Drinking too much because you get a hangover. But you don't seem to have any trouble accepting that our clients drank too much. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, the, there's so much to unpack there. First of all, the, the, there's ordinary human behavior versus mm -hmm. common sense. Mm -hmm. um, humans are not just going through the world uh, applying common sense. It's ordinary behavior. It's the manner in which people behave. People yeah. drink, despite the fact that it can be something that causes acid reflux. Yeah. People drink coffee. It causes acid reflux. I drink coffee. It causes acid reflux. Yep. Me. I weigh the benefit against the, the downside. Yeah, the caffeine headache, worse than the acid reflux. Exactly. Um, she also said that, you know, you burp frequently and you say that you can disguise it, but... Uh, you were speaking with the officer, and it's unlikely that he wouldn't have noticed that you were discreetly burping or swallowing. Well, and also that you expelled the burps through your nose, but you haven't explained how the officer would not have noticed the gases from the food and beer constantly filling up your mouth while you attempted to keep it closed so the gas could go through to your nose. Like, do you imagine, have you ever seen somebody walking around with their cheeks puffed out like Dizzy Gillespie because they're they're experiencing acid reflux that that's not that's not that's ridiculous what the person's explaining but this is how the adjudicator is like characterizing the evidence well first of all even if he was the police officer wouldn't put it in their report um nobody yeah. of course is like that but even he if he was his cheeks up like dizzy gillespie um of course nobody no, the adjudicator the the police officer is not going to put it in there so like looking for the the that evidence from the police you report didn't to corroborate why it. the officer didn't um, say this thing did or didn't occur because his evidence is silent on it but you know i half the time i'm in these hearings and i'll like i might burp twice during the course of a hearing yeah and I'm, and i'm every time i'm like don't you see that what you know you get it people burp if you burp that causes Stomach contents to come into your mouth and leads to an unreliable breathalyzer sample. So, of course, this was 
the big, big point of my concern about this decision and why I, I wanted it judicially reviewed, and I think probably a big concern to Nancy when she argued it, um, was this, this type of logic. And it's concerning to me because, as you know, it comes up all the time with these acid reflux cases that, well, the officer just would have noticed. And also, you wouldn't do the things that give you acid reflux if they gave you acid reflux. And, like, those are not conclusions that are grounded in the evidence. Or in, grounded in real-life human behavior. So the court ultimately says in the case, at paragraph 36, I consider that some of the conclusions drawn by the adjudicator with respect to the presence of mouth alcohol are problematic. This includes the adjudicator's conclusion that it was unlikely that Mr. Deal would eat gluten-rich foods if he had a gluten sensitivity. In my view, this conclusion was speculative. In addition, I agree that Mr. Deal was not required to, nor could he, adduce evidence concerning why Constable Jones did not notice the gases Mr. Deal says arose from the food and beer constantly filling up his mouth. Which, also, he didn't say, but the, the idea that you should have to explain why an officer didn't notice something, which is an, an impossible burden. Paul, why didn't you notice that I got a haircut? I'd go, I'd go two weeks without noticing you got a haircut. Actually, well, I know you well enough to be able to explain why you didn't notice. You never looked up from your Twitter. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> um, right. Like, whatever. But whatever it is, right? It's this... It's, it's a good determination on two issues that have been systematically problematic in the IRP scheme. Well, I mean, the read of evidence is the problem, right? Yeah. The manner in which the the accused evidence is is uh, parsed, is parsed um, and uh, the police evidence is just given a free ride. And of course, yeah. it gives the police the the uh, impression that their evidence is just going to be given a free ride. They can hand in, they can provide crappy evidence, they can mislead the tribunal, they can provide they can provide less evidence than they're supposed to, and you know they can they can provide fabricated evidence, uh, and it's just going to be overlooked. Yeah. That's the problem. So now, at the end of the day, the judicial review was not successful. Yeah. And the reason why was not because the decision was great and smart, and it's just fine to reason that way. The reason why was because on judicial review, there's deference to a decision maker. And so you need to prove not just that the decision was bad or poorly thought out, but also that it was manifestly flawed in the reasoning in a way that was central to the outcome. And the court did find that some of the other reasons for rejecting the credibility were reasonable. And so even though there were these flaws, when they were removed from the decision, the decision still provided a reasonable pathway to the conclusion. And, I just, and I just disagree with that I entirely. do too. Uh, because all it's doing is just telling the, the uh, police that they can... They can do this. They can get away with this. And telling the tribunal that that you don't have to be a uh, a fair tribunal. It's not the tribunal that you would that the people of British Columbia expect they no. would expect they should have. Anyway, so there you go. That's the type of reasoning. That's know. the decision, and I'm tipping my hat on the podcast to Nancy because I'm taking the silver lining on this. Well, that's good that there's some something out of there. You read every. I used to get frustrated when I'd get a bad decision or even when I saw a decision somebody else argued something important um, and I would get to the bottom and see where it went and often I wouldn't read it and you read through every one of these decisions and always find the nuggets and uh, you know good for you because that's the 
key to your success, and it's a significant portion of the success of our firm, is that you keep going through and finding this paragraph and remembering the one paragraph that does the one thing that we need. So thank you. find the one thing. Thank you for that. So. So we have a, a very bad driving of the week. This is not our and ridiculous driver. This is not our ridiculous driver of the week. This it, one, I think that what we should do, Paul, I want you to tell people about about it a bit. And then I think I shall play the crown and you shall play the defense. <laughs> I'll play the defense. Okay. Yep. Well, I'm this giving is, you the easy part. <laughs> this is uh posted on Global's website and probably everybody else, the uh Burnaby Police uh Burnaby RCMP. Put, Burnaby RCMP it's also on Twitter. Posted on Twitter a video um of uh it says dash cam video from the drunk driver from a drunk driver illustrates the dangerous dangers of impaired driving luckily nobody was injured or killed we urge everyone to make the right decision and plan a safe ride home now when you watch it you can see that this is dash cam video from not just one individual it looks like it's probably three different cases um, the likelihood that somebody would have been able to drive this long without, without hitting something over. Uh, is very, very slim. We've well, they did hit a few things. Well, they just managed to get back on the road. I know, but they make it look like, well, no, I, I think it's a different vehicle. I'm looking at the hood and yeah. stuff and it's, they make it look like it's just one person who is a terror on the road. Uh, and that is designed, uh, intended to suggest to you that this is just, you can just get away with this for forever until you almost kill somebody. Um, there's no way that this is the same video because see there, the hood's gone, right? Different hood. Um, the, um, so they've spliced it together, uh, but the driving is pretty bad. Uh, most of the time driving into oncoming traffic. Um, yeah. and, uh, ultimately in one case, there's a stop sign taken out. Uh, there's a collision with a parked vehicle. Um, there's run a uh, red light, yeah. run a stop sign, yeah. uh, drive into the ditch, driving. Yeah. Into the ditch, Not up to, out. up to, uh, 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 intersection in the ditch. So like bad damage, <laughs> but again, this is like, it's, it's looks like it's been spliced a few different ones, which is fine. Which they're is they're fine. trying to send their deterrent message, but imagine no. if this were one driver, Paul, what would you say in this guy's defense? Me? I have to be the one in the, You're defense. the defense lawyer. Well, I mean, it's clearly a medical issue. Um, you know, the, the person might be having a heart attack or something like that. There might be a brain aneurysm, uh, might be in diabetic shock. I was thinking about it today. Um, the, uh, there used to be a judge in Vancouver who used to go into a, a sort of a, a diabetic paralysis. He would, he would no longer be able to function. And uh, it's was, was amazing to me that, that that continued for as long as it did. He was a lovely person, but that 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 nobody stepped in and stopped it, but that could be the case here. Um, it could be somebody who's, uh, who's, who's in medical distress. Um, and looking at how often it, uh, it pulls to the left, it could be somebody, uh, who's got a vehicle that's been damaged or that just pulls to the left all the time. I don't know. I mean, what happens if you go to the eye doctor and they put those drops in your eyes um, you know, you can barely see and there. You're not supposed to drive, but they always say, well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's you're probably okay, but you're not supposed to drive. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was that, but I will say that a reasonable driver having gone into the ditch or hit the stop sign or hit the fire hydrant would have pulled to a stop and recognized maybe I shouldn't be driving right now. Well, it could be somebody with some sort of mental disorder too. I mean, it could be somebody who's schizophrenic. It could be somebody with some other mental disorder and maybe they shouldn't have a license to start with. Um, maybe their, their health is deteriorated such, you know, be, might be somebody with Alzheimer's. 
um, health has deteriorated such that they no longer should be driving, but it's not necessarily an issue of impairment, is my I point. Is there is an offense committed, a criminal res case? ipsa loquitur? The thing speaks for itself. The driving is so bad that it cries out for some other explanation beyond impairment. Absolutely. But look, we don't ever have the individual here to be able to assess them. And I am not a doctor. Uh, you would have to have someone, a doctor, I suppose, assess the individual <laughs> to determine whether or not they are. Um, so you're you know, making an sort... NCRMD defense here? Well, I mean, it could be more than that. It could be a, a innocently uh, a person who's been drugged. It might have been somebody who went out to a restaurant and and had their drink spiked with GHB. <laughs> Or something like that. Um, you know, you don't know if they ever had the mental intent to commit any fence, offense or the lack of mental intent that comes in a drinking driving case. Because, of course, you take away your own mental intent in that case. But uh, you do it, you know, the voluntary by your own consumption of alcohol is, is the, the issue. Mens rea. Um, but you don't know. I mean, this could have been someone who was who was drugged. And uh, and if that's the case, I'll tell you that Burnaby RCMP shouldn't be exploiting that. But yeah. Yeah, God, terrible. How horrible of the Burnaby RCMP. You're right. I'm in, I'm directing a stay of proceedings. It's time to apologize to whoever that driver was, because you, or you never know what what happens if they were just assaulted. You know what happens if they were just the victim of crime yeah. and they're crying so bad and they're trying to escape and they're All terrified. All right, counsel, you have made your point. What happens if it's non-insane automatism? Okay. They've hit their head, you know, suffered a concussion. You know what our listeners really want, Paul? What they really want is the ridiculous driver of the week. Yeah. I mean, they've all watched the video twice now while you've been on your what if rant. Probably. Um, so it's time. Yeah. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. So what is it? This is in Sherman Oaks, California. A, oh, this I, I sent you this one. A go-kart driver and other cars were pulled over uh, after a uh, YouTube stunt uh, gone obviously very wrong. Um, yeah, the uh, chips pulled over uh, a bunch of people. A small vehicle, go-kart, uh, driving in the slow lane, surrounded by two cars, one in front, one in behind, that were essentially escorting the go-kart. All three were pulled over. It was a stunt for a YouTube video, and uh, the go-kart driver was cited for unlawful operation slash impeding a driver. <laughs> Who was he impeding? His own driver. His own follow car. There you go. Um, one of the people driving the cars was issued a citation for being a minor and driving outside <laughs> his license pr provisions. And, of course, the police say, this is stupid and social media isn't worth it. But I don't know, man. Dude got on the news and on this podcast. Well, I mean, the other thing is, is he really responsible? I mean, clearly we know that Facebook is responsible for lots of things. <laughs> and that Instagram is responsible for lots of things. Um, you know, can you say that these kids who are, are subject to uh, the pressures of, uh, of social media, are they really responsible for their behavior when yeah. it's motivated by social media. <laughs> Are I mean, people the... really responsible for their behavior because they did it for the like? Yeah, and that is the question. I mean, they've been set up. It's a setup. It's almost it's almost entrapment. Um, and the people who should be held responsible 
our Facebook, Instagram, and maybe to a lesser extent, TikTok. Well, I mean, if, it, if the driving was up to three minutes long. Then it wouldn't be TikTok. It would TikTok. be, yeah. Well, they probably would cut it up. So maybe you could split the responsibility. So I'll tell you, when I was a kid, me and Jason Koshman and my brother, um, we had a go-kart, a gas-powered go-kart, and my dad built it for us. We actually, my brother and I found the frame for it in the Edmonton River Valley. We dragged it home. It sat around the house for the longest time. Then my dad, who had mad skills, one day took it to the shop. Mad skills now? Who's been on social media too much? Oh, my gosh. Um, Well, my dad could do anything. I just assumed that all all adult men could do anything when I was a kid because my dad could do anything. Um, I didn't know that my dad could weld. He took it down to the shop where he was like a upper management in this business, um, wore a suit and tie every day, took it down there on the weekend, welded this thing up, mounted an engine on it, uh, got an axle machined, built brakes and everything and built a go-kart for us. So we had this gas powered, like powered by a rototiller engine, uh, go-kart that we used to drive around the yard and made a ton of noise. Well, one day we drove it down the street to Jason's house. We used to take the risk. We'd just turn it off, uh, press the button to kill the engine. And, of course, there happened to be a car there, a police car. And so we were caught. We were caught, me and my brother and Jason, driving on the street in our go-kart, only going like 100 meters. And, yeah, the thing could have been seized. We could have lost the go-kart. So... Do you mean to say that you're the ridiculous driver of the week? <laughs> yeah, for in 1978 or 19, 1980 or whatever <laughs> it was. Um, the, uh, the Yeah, probably 1980. Anyway, yeah, I was the ridiculous driver of the week. The police gave us a lecture and sent us on our way, and our hands were all shaking, and we were really quite upset. And uh, I'll tell you, we never took that chance again because we didn't want to risk losing that go-kart. Okay. Well, that's our podcast. If you want to talk to us about your go-kart-related offenses on the British Columbia Roadway, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. (laughs) 